The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. It's just a joy to say that. Romans 5. We have made it through four chapters and are now into Romans chapter 5. And we will get six words into Romans chapter 5 today. Romans chapter 5, the first half of verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. And those six words grab everything we've just studied and throw us into the new section in Romans chapter 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. December 5th, 2013, Nelson Mandela died. That great leader in South Africa at the age of 95 breathed his last. It's not possible to really assess or even to calculate the impact of him politically, not only in South Africa, but throughout the world. For those of you who are too young to remember, um, before uh, Mandela was released, back uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was uh, a regulated racism. And by regulated racism, it was actually law that the the whites and the blacks had to stay apart, apartheid, in South Africa. Uh, it was also the ruling, the ruling minority of the white Afrikaners, with some British influence, were also the rulers in South Africa, and the majority uh, of the blacks, the, the tribes, were uh, ruled by this small minority. Albert Moeller, in reflecting on Mandela's, Mandela's death, wrote this this week. The death of Nelson Mandela represents a landmark in terms of history, but is also in terms of the Christian worldview, a cause for our deepest thinking about this intersection of history and destiny, of human rights and dignity, and of character and of leadership. Nelson Mandela, long before World War II, came into contact with what became known as the African National Congress, the ANC. The sole effort of the ANC was to overthrow the apartheid regime by any means necessary. As a young man, Mandela joined the ANC when it was to use the only word that would fit a terrorist organization. And yet, he also became a major figure in world politics and statesman. He spent many years in prison after several treason trials for acts against the government of South Africa. He found himself on the infamous Robben Island as a prisoner for almost 20 years, then spent almost another decade in a separate prison. By the time he emerged from his prison cell at age 72, he was understood to be the only man who could save his nation from total chaos and violence. Less than four years after his release from prison, Mandela took oath uh, the oath of office as a democratically elected president of South Africa. End quote. Remarkable man. I've been to South Africa uh, several times. He is a, an epic figure on the stage of world history. As the tributes flowed from every possible media outlet all over the world, the one enduring characteristic that marked the legacy of Nelson Mandela was this word. He was a man 
of peace. There's no denying that he brought about a historic change in South Africa. And for a season, he did bring about a temporary peace. But as I said, I've been to South Africa. I have felt the fear in South Africa. I have been afraid for my well-being in South Africa. Both blacks and whites live in constant fear of one another. And it's not as simple as that. You have what they would call the the tribalism of the the blacks in South Africa who, who don't get along and don't like each other. Not only that, this is what they term it. You have the coloreds who are in the south of South Africa, about down around Cape Town, who uh, are Malaysian and uh, uh, black descent. And they have a separate culture that wars against blacks and against whites. It is a, uh, an absolute volcano ready, ready to erupt at any time. There is so much tension in that country. When you study history... And when you study world history, you're really studying the history of war and peace. And that's certainly the case in South Africa. The reason I bring that up this morning is it was such a contrast hearing this week of Mandela's passing of what I was studying in Romans chapter 5. Here was a man touted as the greatest agent of peace in the 20th century. And you know what? Politically speaking, he probably was. But with all the cries for peace, he did not settle either the warring factions problem with each other in South Africa, but ultimately he did nothing regarding the greater war that's really being waged in South Africa and the rest of Africa and all around the world. I'm not talking about a political war. I'm not talking about a civil war. This is a war that mankind has waged and raged against God and that God has waged and raged against mankind since our first parents sinned in Eden. I'm talking about the war with God. Every person ever born was born into enmity with God. That word enmity has a, has a collateral word, enemy, enmity, the state of being hostile toward or an enemy with God. That's not popular to talk about. It's not, it's not good news to say that we're enemies with God unless we talk about how that enmity can be solved. In Ephesians 2, verses 15 and 16, we read, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law, he himself made two into one new man, establishing peace, that he might reconcile both Jews and Gentiles into his body, having put to death the enmity. He says that peace that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles in his day and in his world was not settled by solving their enmity. It was solved by settling the enmity, the hostility between God and each of them. We already read about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Do you hear that? God's anger rails against mankind. We have an enmity relationship with him. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those 
who are in according to the who are according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh, things of the flesh. But those according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh, that's all of us, is hostile toward God. Let's back up a second. I'm thankful for the influence of Nelson Mandela, the influence of Winston Churchill, and so many of those who have enacted peace culturally and nationally in our lifetime and those who have a history. But let's back up. That doesn't do anything with the greater war. Our war with God. Do you believe, are you willing to to believe that there is from our birth a an absolutely incalculably vicious war between us and God? If you don't understand that we are at war with God, you cannot understand and need a reconciliation with God. The gospel is a message of reconciliation. It's interesting that um, the, the first thing that Mandela did when he um, became president was to enact the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in which amnesty could be, could be extended to those who would just simply say what they did. It's not quite the way God deals with sin. If you just confess it, it's done with. Reconciliation is at the heart of war and peace. It's how war becomes peace. You know, I was thinking about that in reference to where we live in the Kansas City area, though. Um, whether it's Johnson County, whether it's across the, the state line. We live in a place and in a culture. It's really hard to tell people that they have anything that they need, much less that they're at war with God. Nice people enjoying their neighbors, sharing Christmas cookies, don't feel like they're waging a war. But this passage informs us that we can have peace with God, which presumes that we are at war with God. I want us to look at this a little more carefully, and we'll discover three wonders, just in verse 1, of having peace with God. Now, as I said, we're going to do verse 1 today, and next week we'll do verse 1 and 2 together. Three wonders of having peace with God. How do we get peace with God? How do you move from having a war with God, being openly hostile and subtly hostile to God, to being in a state of peace with God? Well, there's wonders of that grand act of God. The first we have to understand is the theological grounds for peace with God. The theological grounds for peace with God. We find this in verse 1, looking back into the previous four chapters. Therefore... Having been justified by faith. Just when you thought we were done studying justification, we find it again. And can I tell you, we'll find it again in chapter 5. We'll find it all through chapter 6. It will be loudly proclaimed in chapter 7. It will be explained in chapter 8 and fully illustrated in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Then when we get to chapter 12, it will be based on how we live the rest of our life. We never move away from the simple fact and reality, the deep appreciation That God makes legally righteous, absolutely perfect, not guilty, a sinner before him by declaring them righteous because of what Christ 
has done for them and not because of anything we add in terms of being good. That's the first four chapters of Romans. Now let's talk about where we are in Romans for a minute because if you are studying along with us and you read some commentaries on Romans, um, there, there's a great debate here at chapter five. The, the question is, was the first four chapters about justification and then the next chapter are about um, sanctification and then some say the next three are about glorification. Justified, being made right before God. Sanctified, being made holy throughout our life and obedience before God. Glorification, going to heaven. It's a neat categorization, but it's too clean. It doesn't work like that. Romans 5 to 8 is a special, precious section of the Word of God. I would bet that some of your favorite verses are between Romans 5 and Romans 8. We've entitled this study, which we'll be in for a while, The Clockworks of the Christian Life. Remember we talked about the Romans is like a clock and you, you can see on the front face just simply what time it is, how to be saved, but if you turn it over and you see it's a mechanical watch that's wound by mainsprings and gears and, and, and alternating springs that, and tensions that, that you understand how it works and it's an amazing thing to look at. Well, this is not just the clockworks of salvation in general. This is the clockworks of how do we live in Christ? So what? What do we do with this great fact of being justified and declared righteous before God? What are the details? How do we live that way? Why, why do we live that way? I love what Aaron said this morning in, in drawing us in worship. He said, understanding what's happening in heaven gives us motivation for worship and living now. That's exactly what Romans 5 to 8 articulate. Motivation can't just come from wanting to do better and try harder. It's rooted in heaven. What happened there in terms of sending Christ, what happened here in terms of Christ's life and death and resurrection, and now what's happening there related to his intercession and ministry to us and for us. So Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are not merely about sanctification, although they're a lot about holiness. It's really the connection between justification and sanctification and glorification. When we get into chapter 8, you're going to see sometimes he's talking about justification, the next section, the next half of the verse being holy, the next half of the verse, a third of the verse being, being just, uh, glorified, and he just weaves them all together. He doesn't have this nice, clean slices like we do, and I don't think theologically there shouldn't be. Justification, sanctification, glorification are inseparably linked in how we think about salvation. These chapters explain what many commentators call the fruits of, sanctif- of, excuse me, of justification. What does it mean now that we have become justified? They provide the so what of justification, but they also provide the look what of justification. Look what we have. Look what we in- possess. Look what we enjoy. But we should not miss the trajectory of those first six words. Therefore, having been justified by faith. How were we justified? By believing what God had done. 
Believing what God has done. Let's say it this way. Justification has a therefore. Now think about that. Justification has a therefore. When you see therefore in the Bible, you really should think of the term, terms of an equal sign. Uh, there's a theological formulation, and that's followed by equals. And that's certainly what you find here. We've been justified, first four chapters, therefore. So what? And I, I, as I've said in chapters three and four, you get really um, heavy with justification by faith. And you begin asking Paul, how many more ways do you want to say this? Paul, how many more ways can you say this? Finally, we reach chapter 5, and he says, Therefore, having been once for all justified by faith. Justification has consequences, has fruits, has blessings, has responsibilities, has applications, and has implications. What we're going to find in these next uh, four chapters is, is really a description so much of what the current debate on lordship salvation is really about. There are those who like the first four chapters of, of uh, Romans. If we believe we're saved, that's it. That's all you have to do. And that is all you need to do to be saved. However, what Martin Luther said is so applicable. We are justified by faith alone, but it is not faith that remains alone. In other words, it has fruit. It has consequences. Secondly, we find the reconciling reality of peace with God. The second wonder of having peace with God is this reconciling reality. Those first six words really a summary statement of what had happened in the first four chapters, which we've covered in great detail. Secondly, we find the reconciling reality of peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace is the cessation of hostility, the ending of a war. Peace is always contrasted with the act of hostility and the act of war. To enjoy peace with God, the war must come to an end. But the critical question is whether or not we believe First of all, that there is a war that has to end. We, we looked at this all the way through justification, our study of justification, that if you don't believe you need to be justified, you will never seek to be justified. Here we can say it this way. If you don't understand the war with God, you will never seek or have peace with God. We're not buddies with God. God is not cool, and if we're cool, we become like God. God is not up there longing in heaven. Oh, if they would just hang out with me, I would hang out with them. Those are phrases I got from a recent blog post I read. We're in trouble with God from our birth. But by faith, he makes us right with him. And the consequence of that is this incredible reality of peace with God. Look down for a moment at verse 10. We'll get here in a few weeks. I'm going to find an interesting word with you. For if, 
While we were, what's the word? Enemies, we were reconciled to God. Do you see what's going on there? He calls us enemies, needing reconciliation with God. Not just enemies with each other, not just enemies within states. We are fundamentally, ontologically, as people, born as sinners who are enemies with God. That is a graphic reality. Now, I hope you can do this with me. I want you to turn back over to Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. If you need to go to the table of contents to find it there, there is no shame. I, uh, I get so lost in the minor prophets. In, and the reason is, when I was in seminary, I had to memorize the prophets, obviously, in canonical order, the, word, the, the, the order that they're in in the Bible. But I also had to memorize them in chronological order. And ever since I memorized those two lists, I, I get so confused. So uh, go to the table of contents, find your way to Haggai. It's a great, great way to get there. The table of contents is our friend. And by the way, it's Haggai, not Haggai. I know there's a song that says Haggai. Just please edit that song. It's Haggai. There's no extra I in there. Haggai is the book of restoration. You remember Zerubbabel and uh, his team are sent back over with Haggai to the promised land after the Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple. God said, go back after the Babylonian captivity, rebuild the temple first so that as the people come into Jerusalem when they're repopulating that great city, they will see God's temple standing there. Interesting reality though because some of the people who were older remember Solomon's temple, the greatest building ever built. Can you imagine walls of a building twice the size lined with gold? Challenge, though, was that some of these senior saints, these older generation, these uh, people who had gone over to Babylon as young men and young women, now it's 70 years later, so they're in their 80s and 90s, and they're coming back. And they remember what Solomon's temple was like. That great building. The greatest building ever built. On the 20, chapter 2, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you? who saw this temple in its former glory, who remembers what Solomon's temple was like? Remember, the Babylonians through Nebuchadnezzar ransacked that temple. They destroyed it. Then he says, how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? They didn't have the gold and the silver. Nebuchadnezzar stole all of that. Remember, he even stole the instruments in the Holy of Holies. They came back and they were working with secondary sources, everything they could scrounge up. And what they made in terms of the temple was just just a shadow of what his former glory was. And the older people were saying, "Uh, hang on, this is not nearly as nice as what we left. But now take courage, rebels, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you who take, uh, all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, 
declares the Lord of hosts. Go ahead and build this temple. It's nothing like Solomon's temple, but build it anyway. As for the promise which I made to you when, I came, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. We've talked about that before. He's saying, don't be afraid of the consequences of obedience. Build the temple. No matter what happens, I know that Babylon came and took a shot at you and the temple was a target. Don't be afraid of obeying. I'll take care of the consequences of that. Don't be afraid. For thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 6, once more in a little while, and I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. They will come with the wealth of all the nations. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Interesting. Because that never happened in history. Was God a liar? I'll keep reading. Silver, it's mine. The gold, it's mine too, declares the Lord. Now we find something out. Listen, verse 9. This is so important. The latter glory of this house, this insufficient, smaller, not nearly as beautiful temple that you have built, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, than Solomon's temple, says the Lord of hosts. How? Why? How can can God say that about Solomon's temple? Look at the last phrase. And in this place, I will give what? Peace. Isn't that interesting? What's going on here? This would be the temple, even renovated by Herod. This would be the temple that Jesus would come and cleanse. This would be the temple in which Jesus would come and declare his messiahship. This would be the temple. That would be a foundation on which God in flesh would preach. And isn't it interesting, about three decades after Jesus did that, this temple, gone, flattened. The glory of this temple is greater than Solomon's glory. Why? Because it would be a metaphorical pulpit for Jesus. And what would be his message? What does it say? Peace. Do you believe that God lies? I hope you say no. Do you believe God tells the truth? I hope you say yes. If he preached peace, how did that work out in Jerusalem? Not so well. They were gone three decades later. How has it worked out in Israeli history since then? Not so well. It's still on the front page of the news today. What peace was he talking about here? It's the same peace that's being discussed in Romans chapter 5. Peace with God. We're about to sing it. We're about to talk about it. Isaiah 9, 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. What's the last phrase? Prince of peace. Yes, he will one day declare peace on the earth, but until that day, and even more importantly than that, he is declaring peace with God, our great enemy, and we his without the gospel. Luke 8, you know, excuse me, Luke 2, you know this very well. You, you will be reading this in the coming weeks. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 8, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, isn't this interesting? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what? Peace among men with whom he is Please, wow, we forget that last phrase so often. Jesus' Messiahship did not announce and appropriate peace on the earth immediately. It will come after the millennial kingdom. But it did announce peace between God and man. Please note this is peace with God, not the peace of God. That's another study that God gives us peace with circumstances. This is talking about God through his son ending our war with him by making peace with us. How? Well, that's where we get to number three, the third wonder of having peace with God, the divine means for peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. How, Paul? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look down for a moment, back to Romans 5. Down to verse 11. We exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Through whom we now have received what? The reconciliation. Because of Christ, with God, we have now lost enmity, lost our enemy relationship with God because he has reconciled himself to us and through us. This goes back to connecting those first three verses. Remember in the opening of one of chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 3 says, Concerning his son. The good news of God is his son. Again, I love so much how Aaron patterns our music after what we're studying. You do understand what he was saying this morning. We were singing gospel songs, and he said those are Christmas songs. You you understand that, right? Grace and peace come Because of the gospel. That was what was announced by the angels to the shepherds. That's what we enjoy in the gospel. That's what's announced. That's what we celebrate with Jesus coming as a baby. He came bringing peace. How did that happen? It says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll just hint at this because the rest of uh, uh, this chapter is going to explore this in detail. Colossians 1 tells us, though, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in him. That's Colossians 1, 19 and following. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of 
his cross. Although you were formerly alienated, hostile to God in mind, engaged in evil, de- evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. How? Later he says in Colossians 2 that he nailed the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. God nailed his sentence against us. The reason that he's enemies with us, he has metaphorically on a certificate of debt that we owe him, and he nailed that to a cross. What's interesting about that figure is that you look at the narrative of the cross, there was no piece of paper, to our knowledge, nailed to the cross. But something was nailed to the cross, what? The body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any study of military history reveals that peace almost always comes with great human sacrifice. My father was a Vietnam veteran. He spoke very seldomly about the things that he saw in Vietnam. They troubled him until the day he died. But on occasion, he would speak of friends. He would speak of these men in tears that he knew died so that we could go where we want, say what we want, vote how we want. Made a huge impression on me. If, by the way, if you have served in our military, if you're serving now, thank you. A thousand thank yous for that. We, we should be inestimably thankful for those who sacrifice for us. And that becomes the pattern that appreciation of human sacrifice that God uses to talk about his sacrifice for us as well. But here, the sacrifice is infinitely more. Fundamentally different. I, we're going to reach forward for the next few weeks to Romans 5, 6 through 11, and when we pass that section, we'll constantly be reaching back to it because Verses 6 through 11 of Romans 5 are, are, if Romans is the Himalayas, Mount Everest is verses 6 to 5 of chapter 5. Look down there for a moment. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ for the ungod- died for the ungodly. And then he uses that great image of sacrifice on a human level. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone will dare even to die. People will die for their friends. People will die for their countries. That is an honorable thing. But verse 8 says, but God. Isn't that interesting? People may die for someone that they love. People may die for a country they love. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't die for his friends. God doesn't give a sacrifice for his buddies. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet friends, countrymen, no, sinners, he died for us. And then he says, verse 10, we were enemies. It's a fundamentally different sacrifice. Because that sacrifice was the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just show you something real, real briefly? Uh, look at the very first uh, opening 
uh, verse of, of this section, chapter five, verse one. Speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the last verse of chapter five. Through our Lord, through Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at the last verse of chapter six. Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the last verse of chapter eight. Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is not a plan. The gospel is a person. The good news is not a theory. The good news is a person. The good news is not an idea. The gospel is Jesus. That's the good news. And don't miss what it says here. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't just a savior. He's the Lord. 92 times in the book of Acts. 92 times Jesus is called Lord. You know how many times he's called Savior in the book of Acts? Twice. Where do you think the accent falls? He is Master. He is Lord. I do find it interesting as the world celebrates the contributions of Nelson Mandela, there seems to miss the incredible limitations of him and his leadership. The peace he brokered was temporary. The peace he brokered was fragile. Yet the peace that the Lord Jesus Christ offers us between us and God is not temporary and not fragile. It's eternal and secure for those who believe the gospel. Not only that, what you'll probably miss in the coming tributes to Nelson Mandela is that he was a serial adulterer, a murderer. His character was less than honorable. And when you look at the one who gave peace between us and God, you find a very different character, a man who is pure and perfect and holy, impeccable. Has Jesus ended your long war with God? How's that happen? Four chapters he said, you believe that he made provision for it to end. And you put your hope and trust in his sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross instead of us, instead of you, in place of you, and you believe that he rose from the dead. And he will end that war. But can I say this very, very straight and very forward? Listen. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, who he is and what he did, you are an enemy with God. And ultimately, he will win that war. And the end of that war will be your eternal sentence in a real hell from which there's no escape, for which there's no second chance. It's eternal. Paul says to the Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You know what the challenge of that is? 
Not every knee and not every tongue operates that way during this life. But they all will one day. Can I just beg you, don't wait till eternity to do that. Don't bow to him in judgment. Bow to him in grace. Please, please, don't wait. You are at war with God without a mediator, without a savior. It couldn't be simpler. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Why? Because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christmas season is going to offer us many opportunities to sing about that, to talk about that. But I hope it makes you settled in the fact that you have a debt that has been paid by Jesus, if you know him, for which you can never be enough thankful for. Let's pray. We are indeed thankful to you, Father, because of Christ. We Language is so limited. I, I wish we had better words than, than thank you. I wish we had... I wish we had the language of the angels. I wish we could somehow say more than thank you, but it is a phrase that we have because you have made peace with God for us. We say and we sing, thank you, because of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible Church dot com.